we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to move forward in the word. We ask you to guide and lead us and show us what you would want us to see from all this. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews 3. Hebrews 3, we're going to be starting at verse 12. Last week we taught with the power outage that came on just at the end of the Bible study so that we could have the extra 10 minutes. Uh, So that did not get recorded. And this morning's message got recorded, but it has such a bad hum that, you know, it's not being posted either. Uh, I will try to work with it and see if maybe I can find a way to filter out the hum. But the hum was very loud. It showed very clearly on the, on the visual readout of the audio. Maybe the audio says it had COVID. COVID on our computer system. That would be terrible. All right, Hebrews chapter 3, starting at verse 12. We're continuing on this process of Jesus being greater than Moses, being greater than the angels, and that he's working to bring us into faith rest. So we're continuing that, that theme. Verse 12 says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, albeit not all, that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was the greed for forty years? Was it with them that had sinned, those whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. All right, so here the writer is still building his case using references to Old Testament without even saying that he's doing it. All right, he, remember he's writing to the Hebrew people so they're going to know if they're good believers in the Word of God and the Torah and the, and the prophets, they're going to know when he is referring to the Old Testament, and basically everything I just read refers back to the Old Testament. So he says in verse 12, take heed, brethren, all right, or discern, be discerning, all right, uh, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. And so here he's coming in and he's saying, you know, lest, which means perhaps, perhaps you will be led astray. And by an evil heart of unbelief. Now, this is very powerful. He's using one of the strongest words in Greek for for evil, poneros. And poneros literally means mischief-making or uh, destructive and even worse, delights in injury. This is a strong word for evil. He's not using the word for sin, which was to miss the mark. This is somebody who is one that enjoys doing wrong. Uh, Poneros. Uh, In English, it's P-O-N-E-R-O-S. Pi, Omega, Nu, Epsilon, Rho. uh, 
uh, Omicron Sigma. <laughs> so here, that is the, one of the strongest words that he could use. Lest you be find that you have a heart that desires evil. This is not us just finding ourselves doing wrong. It's not even the idea of I did wrong even by choice, but this is the one that says I went and I did something to hurt. All right, so this is a pretty strong word that he's using. And so an evil heart, the, the seat of emotion, of unbelief, and this word for unbelief is really simply a want of faith. All right, the just shall live by faith is given to us three times, and he's saying basically, lest you find in your heart somebody who's not living in a righteous way. This is a powerful statement. And he's not talking about most Christians because Christians have exercised faith. So it is not somebody who knows Christ that he's talking about. He's saying, all these people out there that is from what Jesus told us, wheat and tear. He says, in every church, Satan has put tares, which look like wheat, when they're growing. It's not until you get to the harvest that you can tell the difference because now you can see that it's not wheat at the top of the stalk. But the tear looks like wheat in, when it's first growing. The stalk looks like wheat. The leaves look like wheat. It's not until you get to the fruit that you go, ah, that's not wheat. <laughs> get rid of it. Satan puts tares in every church. And his goal is to make people look at the tares and say, well, that person's terrible. Why? You know, why don't want to go to church? You know, that person doesn't, isn't godly. That person isn't, isn't righteous. And uses those people that are planted in the church that call themselves Christians and say, see, see that Christian? That, that's a terrible Christian. You know, you want to be part of this group? And this is why we need to be careful even when we're fellowshipping. If somebody isn't living a godly lifestyle, it doesn't mean they're not a Christian. But we're not going to open up to them and share intimate details with them and, and fellowship with them. You know, we let them go and let God work on them. And, you know, in the parable, the, the angel said, well, shall we go in and cut them out? And he says, no, wait until the harvest when we can know what is wheat and what is tares. And so we have this process. He goes, take heed, brethren, lest there be in you any evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Now this is something that we see, in, and if you witness to enough people that are really smart, they'll point out that many of the atheists out there now used to be Christians growing up, supposed Christians, and they left the faith. Well, I don't believe that they were Christians in the first place. They did not get a relationship with God that can hold them into, in place. And this is, I've said this over and over again, if you fall away from God, you backslide and you're a Christian, you're miserable because you know what you have fallen from. If you can fall from Christ and not be miserable and be convicted by the Holy Spirit, you weren't his in the first place. You maybe had some good head knowledge. Uh, and many times people are trained up in a church. They grow up in a church, which is even worse. And for every child that grows up in the church, there has to be a point in time that 
the faith that they're following becomes their faith and not their parents' faith. And this is why I love children getting saved. I do. But I also worry about children getting saved. Because sometimes they don't really understand what they're doing and then they get further in and they, they never really truly gave their heart to God and have a relationship with God. And this is something that is very important. This relationship with God that's going to keep you from falling away. Because you're going to go, the Holy Spirit's living in you and when you start walking away from God, the Holy Spirit's saying, what do you think you're doing? You're not supposed to live this way. There's a better way to live and you feel miserable. You cannot fall back into the sins you used to do and, not, and, and enjoy them. Because the Holy Spirit is whispering in your ear, what are you doing? Now we can keep going until we forget and not hear him anymore. We harden our heart. But we did have that period when we heard his voice. And this is very important. There are many people out there that don't hear that. And I don't believe that they have lost their salvation. I believe they never had it in the first place. They never had a true faith conversion with, in a relationship with God. They have head knowledge. They said, well, I know that I'm a sinner. I can understand that. I believe that there was a Jesus. I believe that he died, but I'm not going to surrender my life to him. I'm just going to say I'm a Christian. And they'll say all the right words for a long time. But there's no true change in them. When we become a Christian, we become a new creation in Christ. The Holy Spirit indwells us, and there'll be a big change. I, I really, truly believe that if you're a Christian, something in your life changed when you became a Christian. Not everything, but something had to have changed. Yes, Billy? Does that raise big doubts within yourself as far as who you are, you are not? Nope. I'm in a relationship with Jesus, and nobody can tell me that I'm not in a relationship with Jesus. It would be like somebody telling me, you're not, you don't know your wife. Uh, I got married to my wife 40 years ago, and I would be able to say, uh, well, you know what, I know my wife. I, we got married. I remember the day we walked to the altar. I remember the pastor up there, and we have been in a relationship ever since. Again, I'm going to come back to the idea. When I got saved, I know Christ came into my life, and he changed me. He gave me a love for the word. He, he took away my temper. He made a great change. He made me a new creation. There is no reason that I doubt that. When I, when I backslid and left, and left the church because of my workaholism, I was guilty and knew that I was guilty. He was working on me the whole time. You believe the word. I would look at this myself on this and say, number one, what does the word say? The word tells us, if we call upon the name of the Lord, we shall be saved. At that time, he comes in. And for me, I don't believe that you can fully doubt that you're saved if you know him. When I got saved, there were changes in my life. I became a new creation. My sin was, debt was taken off of me. The load of sin was taken off of me. If you can't recognize that, then you probably have to go, God, I'm not sure where I am. I need to know that you are in my life. And it could be just trusting. You know, if you're not an emotional person, you might just have to say, God, I said this prayer and I meant it. And I'm taking you at your word. And this is very important because 
if we base our life on emotion, we're going to be miserable. One day I'm up, the next day I'm down, the next day I'm, you know, for a week I'm down, and then I get one or two days of up, and then I'm down for a month. And, and if I'm basing my life on emotion, I'm going to be miserable because I'm up or down among, uh, from what it is. Uh, but, you know, it tells us in Romans 10, it says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and shall believe in your heart that the Lord has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Confession is to say the same thing as. All right? So it is very important that if you actually did this, I confessed him as Lord, I confessed my sin, I've asked him to come in, he's there. Just say, God, you're there. You said you would be. This is what I say when, when I'm having a bad period in my life, I grab hold of Romans 8.28. You know, my emotions are down, <laughs> you know, below the cellar. You know, everything's falling apart, everything's miserable, but I grab hold of that and say, for all things work together for good for those who call, love God and called according to his purpose. I'm going, God, I don't understand. I feel miserable. I don't know why all this is going on, but you have said there will be good for it, from it. And I'm holding on to the knot at the end of the rope as I'm hanging over the Grand Canyon, and I'm holding on to it for all I've got because that's all I've got. So it really comes down to do you believe what God said and have you truly believed? And this is the key, though. Have I truly believed? Have I committed all of my life to him? And for me, I know that I have. I know that he is indwelling me. I know that he is changing me. And that's part of what I look at people and go, are you changing to be more righteous? And that's the next step. If he's living in you, you're going to be more righteous. You're going to love him more. You're going to be seeking after him more. If you can go without that, then you really do have to say, God, have I really truly surrendered and turned myself over to you? If Christ is in you, the Holy Spirit is in you, you're going to know when you're doing wrong. And you're going to be guilty. And it's not just guilty because, you know, I'm doing wrong, but it is going to be a deep guilt that you're against God. Because once you're saved, you're going to know it. And if you're growing in Christ, so if you're growing in him and you're seeing improvement in your life and you're seeing more righteousness in your life, God is in you. If you're not seeing all that, then it's time to be able to go before God and, and, and cry out to him. God, I'm not sure I know you. You know, I confess that I'm a sinner. Please come into my life and do it all over again and, and truly mean it. Because this relationship is everything. I'm sure that we all don't know God the way we should. None of us know God the way we should. We have to be careful because we are sinners, so if we're too harsh on ourselves, that statement is right. We're always in a backslidden state because we're always sinners. But when I say backsliding, I'm talking about you don't read your Bible, you're not praying, you're not going to church because you are giving up, basically. You're saying, I don't want to fall gone. You might be backslidden even if you do come to church. I would say, are you reading your Bible? Are you praying? Are you lifting up God? Are you worshiping God? All of these things become important to the person who is seeking God. How long can you go without reading the Bible? 
How long can you go without being taught? How long can you go without praying? You know, if you can go the whole week without doing any of that, you might want to consider, am I in a relationship with God? Yeah, I don't have much time to read the Bible, but I listen to stuff on the radio all the time. It's a start. Everybody should be reading the Bible as well as listening. All right? And this is important. My, I teach a lot, and I'm studying a lot for classes, but I still work on reading the Bible as, so I get other other feeding coming in. Uh, it is important to listen. It's important to be taught. But you've also got to be getting to a place where you're feeding yourself, growing in maturity. You know, if the only place you're being fed is when you come to, to the church and Bible studies, that's a pretty harsh place to be at. I mean, it's better than <laughs> better not being fed at all. But there has to come this point when you're feeding yourself. You know, if, we, if you have a child and the only time that child eats is when you grab the bottle and feed that child and he's five years old, <laughs> you're going to look at that child and go, there is something wrong. You should be feeding yourself by now. Matter of fact, you should be eating the hamburgers and the steak and, and pretty hard food, not, not just being bottle fed. And this is what Peter was saying, you know, you need to leave, you know, you're not newborn children anymore. You need to move to the next step, you know. Quit being bottle fed and get onto real food. And so we get to this point of in our relationship with God that we desire more. We desire the next level. And this is really what happens. People get saved and all of a sudden they want to read the Bible. And the Bible makes sense. Now, so often I've heard people say, you know, before I got saved, I tried to read the Bible and nothing made sense. Now when I read it, I understand it. And that's in a pretty important place. Why do we understand it after we're saved? Because the writer of it is living in us and he says, this is what I'm taught. This is what I've had them write. You may not know the in-depth of it, but all of a sudden it jumps off the page. It's living. It's, it's vital. And you start looking at it and say, I know this word. This is the Holy Spirit talking to me, and the Holy Spirit lives in me, and I'm going to understand. And this is something that is important for us to be able to understand. And I'm, will you have times when you might doubt it? I guess maybe, especially when you first start out and you're trying to learn who he is. But after 40 years, I have no doubt that I'm saved. I have watched God change things in my life. I've watched him work in my life, and I'm going, there is nobody that's going to convince me that I don't know the one that's living in me. All right? So this is the very important step. And that's why I say it's kind of like somebody trying to come along and say, well, you're not really married. Uh, well, I remember the day that I got married. I remember the license being sold. I remember the pastor being up there. And we've been together ever since. And I know this person more now today than I did when we got married. I know Jesus more today than when I did when he came into my life. And, I, and he has changed my life so drastically, and I know that I have the peace that passes understanding. I know that I love people more than I've ever loved them. I'm learning to be forgiving. I'm learning to be merciful, and all of those things that come with it when you're, when you're saved. And these are all part of it. You know, and this is one of the things when I look at some people who claim to be Christians, and I see no love, no mercy, no peace, 
now I'm not their judge, but it's like, are you really, truly in a relationship with the, with the God of the universe? We're not their judge, but at that point we're looking and going, you know, there's no fruit. If there's no fruit, then we have to doubt. And the same thing in our life. Is there fruit? If there is fruit of salvation, then we can go, yeah, I, I, I am growing, the fruit is being produced, I'm lo- I love more, I, I'm more merciful, uh, I want, want the word, and we have, you know, we, then we get to places where we're going, well, it's just not me. I'm just not a very loving person. Well, that's even more the rec- you know, proof that it's Jesus in you when you start becoming loving when it's not you loving. Yeah, I'm not a very loving person. All right, good. So when you start loving, you're going to have an extra proof that you are in Christ. Well, I just can't forgive people. Well, then you're going to have an extra proof that you are in Christ when you start, start forgiving people. All right? So all of this comes down to the fruit of the Spirit comes in you. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering. Uh, all the fruit of the Spirit that comes in you when the Spirit indwells you. Will you ever get perfect at it? No, sometimes people don't. But there needs to be a loving desire for you, a loving for forgiveness, a, a desire to show mercy. And when we get to that point, then we're going, God is changing me. I am starting to show the fruit of the Spirit. If you're not showing any of the fruit of the Spirit, then you have to question and say, God, have I truly given you my life? Because there are a lot of people that go up front to a church and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I, I believe that Jesus died for my sin. Come into my life and, and save me. And they're just words. And they're thinking, abracadabra, you're saved. <laughs> and they didn't mean them. They never confessed. And the Greek word for confess is to say the same thing as. Homologeo, same speech. God, you say I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. And mean it. You say, I need Jesus. Yes, I need Jesus, and you have to mean it. And this is the key to this. It's not just say a prayer. You know, and believe me, I've been to the churches that say, well, just say this prayer, and God will hold you accountable for that prayer. I don't believe that. I don't believe that just because I say the sinner's prayer, God is going to grab me by the scruff of the back of the neck and drag me wherever he wants just because I said a prayer that I didn't mean. And I've gone soul winning. I, I went soul winning with one person, and her goal was to get everybody to say the sinner's prayer. And she had some of them that she'd back them up in a corner against a wall until they said that prayer. You know, and I'm going, that person didn't get saved. They just said some words to get you off their back. Well, God will hold them accountable. I'm going, that's not the doctrine of our church. That's a doctrine of a totally different church. You know, you have to have the fruit of the Spirit being, being, being built up. Now, you may have little tiny <laughs> berries of the fruit of the Spirit, you know, uh, you know, a little bit of love showing up that is outside, you know, a little bit of forgiveness, but there needs to be that fruit that is coming into your life. Uh, once it starts developing, then you go, I know. I know that I'm saved. Here's the fruit of the Spirit. It's developing, it's growing, it's building up. But we need to be very careful because we like to make excuses. I have talked to several people this week and they all have excuses. Well, I can't do that part of the Christian life because it is just not me. 
And it's like, well, so what? It's not supposed to be you anyway. It's supposed to be God in you, coming out of you, so that this fruit comes in. Because I'm, by nature, not that loving a person. God had to teach me to love people. And I've complained since he taught me to love people because when you love people, it hurts. When they don't do what it was, you know, it was so easy when I was younger. I just taught people, and it's like, I don't care what you do with things. But I didn't like people. I didn't even like, not, not just love them, I didn't like people. I was a loner. I just didn't care. And then God taught me to love people. And now it's like, I care what they do with what I teach. Because I now care about them. Sometimes I don't show it very well, but I do care about what happens to them. And, you know, it, then you and they don't respond. It's like, God, why? <laughs> why did you put me in? Why did you make me want to care about them? <laughs> so you get to this place where God changes even your personality of you because he's making you more like him. And if you're not seeing that change, then you have to come back and say, God, do I really know you? And then come back to the place where, God, I'm going to confess you and I'm going to mean it and I need you to change my life. But ultimately, we get to the word and say, God, you said if I confess you, I'm yours. And that may be all we're doing until we see the fruit, fruit develop. And there are many times when people are praying at the altar for Christ to save them, and they go, I don't feel anything. Well, this is what the Bible says, but I don't feel anything. This is what God says. You admitted you were a sinner. Did you mean it? Yes, I meant it. You recognize that Jesus is the only way that you're going to get to heaven. Did you mean it? Yes, I did. You recognize that you know, he's going to change your life. Yes, I did. Believe God's word. This is important, and it's hard for us sometimes to believe by faith what God has said. But there's so many people in our church, I look at them, there's certain people in, my, in this church that I know are saved because I'm watching their lives change. There's several people I look at, I'm going, God, you know. I don't know, you know. And then sometimes God will have them say something, it's like, okay, yes, this person. Everybody, when they first get saved, is getting saved because they don't want to go to hell. Right. They're looking for fire insurance. When you made this prayer and you truly believe it, the Holy Spirit indwells you and he will get, you will start seeing the fruit of the Spirit coming out. You can't do enough. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. So it's all going to be just that prayer. And then surrender to him. And not making excuses for anything that happens in your life, not making excuses for any bad activities, but going before him and confessing before him and saying, God, I need your help. And this is the beauty of it. It's all God. And I just say that little prayer to get started. <laughs> And it's all God who makes the changes. And he comes in because he promised he would. It's his desire that nobody will go to hell. Now, that does not mean that everybody's going to go to heaven because there are many that are going to reject. And it's very important that we know that we're in a relationship with him, that we see the spirit changing us. And again, if we're not seeing the Spirit change us in any way, shape, or form, then we're going to have to look and say, God, do I know you? Do I truly know you? Did I, did I surrender my life to you? Are you my Lord and Savior? Because that is what he's asking to be, Lord and Savior.
And I'm not going into the lordship theology. There's an entire denomination out there with, if he isn't lord of your life, you're not saved. All right? Now, I do believe that he should be lord. And if we truly have devoted our life to him, he should become lord. And this is hard for us as Americans because we don't have this idea of surrender to anybody. You know, we are independent, tough as nails people that do things. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we're going to try to do it even for heaven. Jesus, I need you. Now get out of my sight. I'm going to pull myself up into heaven with, you know, all the way up into heaven without your help and doing it your way. Not going to cut it. You know, that's going back to I just need to escape hell, so I, I said this prayer. If that is your only motive for, for saying the prayer, then you've got it all backwards. There has to be a surrender so that we enter into the rest of this, this whole chapter is talking about. And I turn my life completely over to him. And again, if you've done it, you know it. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced if you have committed your life to God, you know that you've done it. Uh, because something is changing in you. Uh, most everything is changing in you. And you watch what God is doing to change. You become more forgiving. You become more loving. You become uh, more desirous of his word. You become more desirous of fellowship with the church. You know, I have a problem with Christ, supposed Christians to say, well, I have nothing, I'm going to have nothing to do with the church because I don't like the people in the church. Jesus said, you'll know that you are my disciple. They will know you are my disciples by your love one for another. If you don't love the people, and I'm not going to say you're going to be best buddies with the people in the church. There's a big difference between loving the people and even liking the people. There are people that I love that I don't want to be around. It says I have to love them. And love is a choice. All right? And this is very important. Love is a choice. It's not an emotion like we want to think it is. True love is objective love that I make the choice for. This is what I learned back when I got married. My decision for my wife, because she asked me, why do you love me? Threw me for a loop. I had to think for about a week trying to figure out why, why I loved my wife. Because everything I came up with was so superficial, it's like, this can't be the reason. Well, she's beautiful. So that means if she has an accident tomorrow when it's totally scarred, I'm not going to love her. No, I don't think I'm that shallow on this relationship. Now, good personality. Again, she gets into an accident, you know, and all of a sudden her personality changes. Am I going to stop loving her? And I went through this whole thing. All the things I could think of as why I loved her, you know, was like that the world throws out at us was all superficial. And then I finally just said, I'm going to love her because I choose to love her. And that's how God loves us. He has chosen to love us. There is nothing we can do that is going to stop him from loving us because he has chosen to love us. And that is what true love, that's what agape love, that's what God's love, this is the love that everything should be based on. I choose to love this person. It doesn't matter how they act. It doesn't matter what they do. I'm going to love them because it is a choice. Now, you know, we like the other, the other love, and especially in marriage. You know, it's like, I, I want to love you because of these other reasons, but it has to be built upon 
objective or agape love. I have chosen to love. And that is what God says, I have chosen to love you. It's a hard love. Now, I may not like the person, but I'm still going to love them. And this is very important on all this, but we need to be able to understand. And this is God's changing of our heart, of who I think I am. And God says, no, you're who I say you are. When we become a Christian, we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We are, the Holy Spirit comes to live in us. He puts a new spirit in us, a new life, and we are changed. And we will be in the process of being changed. And this is why I say I'm, very, I'm absolutely con convinced that if you can't point to something that changed in your life when you got saved, there's a problem. May not be, may not be all that big. It may be just, I love going to church now. I love reading the Bible because all of a sudden it means something to me now. It could be a very small, small thing. But you're going, yes, I am a new creation. And then over the years, you watch God making bigger and bigger and bigger changes in you. And you're going, yes, I know. I know that I know that I'm saved. Because I am looking at the fruit. The fruit is being produced. I am being changed. I am being sanctified. I am being made more like God with each passing day or year, depending on how you want to look at it. I kind of say look at it by the year. But you get to the place where you say, I don't have a question. I have no question that I am his. And very important. And resting in that truth. Because Satan is going to try to convince you that you are not saved. And it's very important. Now the flip side of that is the people who get self-righteous. Look at all the good that I'm doing. Here's my proof that I'm saved. I'm doing lots of good things in my own strength. Those are the ones that Jesus says, many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't I? You know, and God is going to say, We've got, you know, you've got a problem. I never knew you. you. You looked like you were loving to people. You looked like all these things were good, but I never knew you. That's the flip side of it. We got those who just don't get saved, you know, aren't really saved and don't know him, and no fruit is, and then you've got those on the flip side that are self-righteous. Look at all I've done. You know, and they're forgetting the second half of Ephesians, you know, eight and nine, you know, not by works of righteousness, which I have done. You know, we are saved by grace. All right. Uh, and we're gonna get back into our <laughs> study. That's okay. So they depart. Those who don't know him depart. Verse 13 says, But exhort one another daily, why it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through deceitfulness of sin. So here's that wonderful word, but. <laughs> he goes, exhort one another. Encourage one another. Build each other up. If you, as you're seeing people change, you should be saying, I like watching what God's doing in your life. You know, God has changed you so much. And I love watching various people in our church that God has changed and is changing. And you're going, does that mean I'm not going to ever have a question? No, I'll probably have lots of questions. I've been studying God's word for 40 years and I still have questions. And, you know, we, we look at these things and it says, exhort one another daily. This is one of the reasons that we have to be around the body of Christ. 
so that we can be exhorted. Now, now some people get saved, and I'm going to say they probably do get saved, and they don't come to church. It's hard to stay in fellowship. The greatest example that, that has happened is, and it happened when, you know, many times when I was in, you know, we used it with the kids at, uh, uh, at camp, campouts. We'd take a red-hot glowing coal with tongs out from the middle of a fire and set it off to the side. It was red hot. It was burning. It was definitely part of that fire. It didn't take long for it to go out when it wasn't in the fire anymore. This is what happens to us as Christians. If we do not meet with the body of Christ on a routine basis, we will lose our fire. We will lose the urgency. Now the messages you can hear, they're good. They're, gonna, they're going to encourage you. And if that's all you can do, it's better than nothing. But we must be part of the body where people see the changes and encourage us. There are no such things as Lone Ranger Christians. You know, I got saved and I'm going to be all by myself. I'm going to follow God all by myself. It's just me and God. Well, if you absolutely don't have a church, God will find a way to make that work. But if there's a church that you're supposed to be part of, be an active member of that church and don't make excuses. Well, God, I'm just so tired. Well, yeah, you might be tired. Go to bed earlier, get some exercise, whatever it takes to quit being tired. But don't make excuses. Well, they at the church just don't like me. They look at me funny. You know, well, find the one that doesn't look at you funny and spend time with them. You know, you're being affected by the tear <laughs> who's looking at you funny. And you're probably imagining it anyway in many cases. I, I have seen so many people, many of the times I've worked with people that are in trouble or having trouble, it's because they're imagining things that aren't even there. Well, that person said such and such, but I know what they meant. They said the opposite, they meant the opposite of what they said. Well, how do you know? Well, I just know. Uh-huh. All right, Satan is working overtime to keep you out of that church. Start looking positively toward what's being said. Take the encouragement and live with it. You know, don't, don't go and be starting to make up all kinds of reasons not to come. Because Satan will help you come up with reasons not to come. He does not want us in a church. He does not want us in the fire. He's going, I want you outside. I want you to get, you know, I lost you, but, you know, you, you're, but I want you outside. I want you to be cold. I want you to think that everybody's bad. They're thinking bad of you. They're always talking behind your back about you. They're, they're looking at you funny. They don't, they don't think you're saved. They don't, they don't like you. You just stay away because nobody there is going to miss you. Nobody there is going to care that you're not there. And he's going to speak into our ears the whole time. And here we see, but exhort one another. Now, you have to be in and around the body of Christ to be exhorted. <laughs> All right? He says, while it is called today, lest any of you harden, be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And see this word, deceitfulness of sin. It is so easy to be deceived by sin. When we are not following God, it is easy to be deceived. 
it's easy to be deceived even if we are following God because our heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it according to Jeremiah? And we don't really understand how wicked our heart is. You know, if we fully understood how wicked our heart is, we would be appalled. Because we'd look at it and go, ugh, that is in me. That is what I want to do. And this is why the body of Christ is important. We encourage one another. Sometimes that encouragement means, you know, I've been noticing about this about you, and I think you need to, you know, look at God a little closer. Now, we don't usually think of that as criticism, but if it's spoken in love, it is something that can be edification. And we all know the difference between somebody, you've got to change, or I've really been concerned about you. I've been praying for you in this area of your life. Doesn't make it any easier to swallow. You know, they're still criticizing you in one sense, but they're doing it out of love. And you know the difference. You know the difference when somebody comes to you in love or when they come to you with a critical spirit. Now, even if they come with you at a critical spirit, at least think about what they say, even though they delivered it wrong. It's probably some grain of truth in what they said and consider what they said. Don't just get mad and say, ah, you're just, you know, know, you're just a busybody and trying to get me in my life, you know. They did it wrong, but, you know, give it some thought. All right? Um, Exhort one another and lest, because perhaps you'll harden your heart from sin, the deceitfulness of sin. How easy is it to fall into a sin and get stuck there? And then we'll start saying something, well, I'm just weak in this area. Satan, I have edged out this part of my life. You can do whatever you want in here because I'm just weak and I'm not going to do anything to build up walls and, and stop myself from sinning in that area. That's not right either. Uh, and that will lead to even further backsliding uh, because we have given Satan a beachhead in our life to say, this is your area, Satan. You can do what you want in this because I'm just going to fall for it because really I just like this sin a lot, so I'm not, I'm not going to try anything to stop it. And we give him a spot to come in. And if you know anything about military, they would find a beachhead and then they would expand from there and Satan says, okay, you gave me this. Now I'm going to work my way out. And it gets worse and worse and worse as he finds other areas that we can make excuses for. When we are in sin, we confess that sin and say, God, I need your help to get out of this sin. And don't let Satan just have a field day in that area. Just can't help myself, you know. God, you know, I've got, I've got lust problems. I'm just, uh, I'm, you know... It's just me. You know, you can't do anything for me. I've just got a lust problem, and I'm going to just leave here. God, I'm a kleptomaniac. Every time I see something, I've got to take it. It's just a psychological issue, and I can't help myself. You know, and I create beachheads. And Satan says, thank you. You've let me into your, into your heart, and I'm going to find a way to move out from there. Don't give him an inch. Go before God and say, God, I am so sorry. I have a real problem in here. I need you to change my heart attitude about this. And watch God work. It is an amazing thing when you turn over your life and say, God, I need help in this area. Whatever that area is. 
and you know, I don't, I can't name all the sins that it could possibly be, but you know, you know what your problem is. You know, and all of us have problem areas that we have to recognize and turn over to God for deliverance in that area. And so we see all of this, the deceitfulness of sin, verse 14, for we, may, for we are made partakers of Christ if we, if we hold from the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. I want to first note this first part of the word, for we are made partakers. All right? It isn't me saying I am going to make myself a partaker. It says we are made. Who does that work? God. We turn our life over and he makes us a partaker of his life. And then we have this wonderful word that everybody has a problem with, if. The problem with this if is the Greek has four different words for if. There's if and it's true, if and it is definitely not true, if and it probably isn't true, and if and it, it most likely isn't true. This particular if is if and it probably isn't true. All right, most likely not true. It's not an absolute, but he says, so it makes it hard on us. If and it probably isn't true that we hold on to from the beginning of our confidence or our foundation steadfast to the end. God knows that we are weak. He knows it. We are made partakers with him because it's all his work. Okay, so if it's true, are probably true with the other two? If and it is true, if and it is definitely not true, and there's lots of those in, this, in the next chapter, if and it is most likely not true, <laughs> and the other one it is uh, slightly likely that it's not true. The last two are the hard ones. We don't like those other two because they give us a lot of if. Yeah. Yeah. It's the third, it's the third most likely not. All right. Which gives us room to have a problem. And, but it says, the first part, I do want us to pay attention to that first part. We are made partakers. It's not me that's making myself a partaker with Christ. He does the work. And this is why it's important to remember that we are saved by grace, not of works. All right? And if we really grab hold of that and we truly believe it, it doesn't matter what happens in my life because Christ is the one that saved me by his grace. It is by grace. Now, James gives us a little problem because he says, you know, that our works prove that we're saved. Now, he doesn't say that we can't be saved and not, and not have works, but he says, there's no way for me to know that I'm saved without the works of God coming out of me. All right? And this puts us into that whole question area, am I saved? If I don't know that I know because the works are coming out of me, then I have to wonder, am I saved? And I may or may not be at that point. And that is where it gets to be very hard for us. If I don't know that I'm saved because the works aren't coming out, once I start seeing the works, then I can point to my works and say, there's the love, there's the forgiveness, there's, here's where my life is changed completely, and work on it from there. 
But without that, we don't know. We can't prove that we're saved if we don't have works. And that means prove to ourselves. And that's when I say that prayer and go, I don't know if I really meant it. There's no change in me. And I'm not sure that without those changes that you can really have the confidence that you are saved. Now, once you start seeing that and you see, you know, you're helping people, you're loving people, you're forgiving, you have a desire to be in God's word, you have a desire to be with his people, those are changes. Those are part of the works that say, yes, God, you're there. You're changing me. All right. And very important with all of this. Then in verse 15, it says, while it is said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the day of provocation. We talked about the day of provocation. That was right after they left Israel, uh, left uh, Egypt. They started the day of provocation at, Mir- at, at the waters of Miramar, where they complained there's not enough graves in Egypt, so you brought us out here to die. All the way to Sinai, where they actually went so far as to have a golden calf built, because Moses had been up on the mountain for 39 and a half days. And they're going, we don't know what happened to this Moses guy. He went up on that mountain with all that fire and smoke. He's not coming back. Aaron, build us a, build us a god. And Aaron foolishly mold, molded, uh, made a molten calf for them and said, here's your god. And Moses came down angry. So angry, if you remember, he broke the Ten Commandments stones in his anger. That's pretty bad because that was the Ten Commandments that God's finger literally wrote. And he broke those in his anger. Moses had a severe anger problem. All right? He had a lot of good things, but he had a weakness. He had a weakness with anger. And it got, got him in trouble on more than one occasion with, with God. And so he says, Today... If you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. This is something that's very important. When we hear God's voice in his word, in a message, do we act on it and change our life, or do we ignore it? The more we ignore it, the more we harden our heart in that area. And this is scary. This can be scary. Greg Laurie says the easiest place to get a hard heart is in church. Because if you hear the message over and over again and ignore it, your heart hardens to the place where you no longer hear the message. And we need to be careful. When we hear the word of God and God says, I want you to change, we need to go, yes, Lord, I want to change. Help me to change. God, I agree. I should change in this area. I can't do it, but I need you and let him start changing you. But if you start ignoring those messages, it's gonna get harder and harder to hear that message. And you've given Satan an area of your life to take over. So we want to be able to say, God, I'm gonna hear and I'm going to obey. And many times the word, especially in the Old Testament, was to hear and obey. Not just hear, but God, I want to hear your words and I want to obey and do what you say. And this is important for us. Are we going to surrender our life? And I talk a lot about this because that's the importance. 
Am I surrendering an area to God and letting him change me? Because I truly can't change without surrendering. And then he takes that surrendered life. He puts it on the cross and crucifies it and says, okay, it's gone. If I try to do it on myself, I get my whip and chain, a chair out and try to, try to tame that sin in my life, it eventually will come out. It's only going to stay when I'm paying attention to it and I've got that whip and chair and saying, okay, you're under, you know, I got you. And we think about uh, Siegfried and Roy that got attacked by his you know, lion or tiger, whatever it was that attacked him, you know, because he turned his back on it or just forgot for a moment that it was there and it's a wild animal. Sin is a wild animal that needs to be killed. Not just tamed, not making it look good, you know, not dressing the pig up in, a, in clothes and, and uh, makeup to make it look good because that pig is going to run right to the mud that the first opportunity it gets. Our sin's the same way. We may dress it up and make it look nice, put it into a cage, but the first opportunity it gets to get out of that cage, it's going to come back with a vengeance. So it has to be surrendered to Christ so it can be put on the cross and crucified. And that's when we have true victory over it. You know, that he has crucified it. And now I'm a new, new person in that area. And as long as I don't give it back a chance and try to drag it out of the grave, I'll be okay. Now we have a couple of things that I just want to bring out. The last three verses of, uh, four verses of this uh, chapter are kind of interesting because he points to Jewish activities and he asks rhetorical questions in the process. So we're not going to cover them real heavily, but we're just going to look at this. It says in verse 16, For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. Moses led three and a half million people out of Egypt. Some of them didn't want to leave. Some of them were happy about Egypt. But Pharaoh had said, take all your people out of here. I'm tired of you Jews. I'm tired of your God. Get everybody out of here. And certain other people came with them. They weren't all Jews that came out with him. There were some that said, hey, this God's pretty strong. We want to follow him. And it says, some of you, when they heard, did provoke, did challenge God. And we see this all through the 40 years of wandering. We see it before the 40 years of wandering, and we see it all through the 40 years of wandering. They're at the Red Sea, and they're going, you brought us out here to die. Pharaoh's coming out with this whole army, and we've got the Red Sea on one side, cliffs on the other. What are we going to do? And Moses said, just stand still and see what God's going to do. And God split the Red Sea so they could walk across. They get to the other side of the Red Sea and go, we're thirsty. We need water. You know, what's wrong with you? You brought us out here so that we could die. There wasn't enough graves in Egypt. All the time they were complaining. They get to the promised land. They get right to the Jordan River and they send spies in. And ten spies come back and saying, it's a great land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Look at these great big... Uh, uh, fruits and vegetables. They brought, they brought a cluster of grapes that they put on a pole between two men. That's a big cluster of grapes. And they go, we just have one big problem. There's giants in the land and we look like grasshoppers and they, and they see us as grasshoppers. I don't know how many of the giants they interviewed to find out that they saw them as grasshoppers, 
but they attributed their view to the giants. Joshua and Caleb said, God is more than able. Let's get in there and take this land. The people refused to go in. And God said, okay, you're going to wander for 40 years until you all die. What happened then? They go, uh, we don't want to wander for 40 years. Let's go into the land. No, God said you're not. And then thousands of them died in a battle because God was not on their side. And then they wandered around for, for 40 years. So we have this, you know, provoking. It says, but with whom was God grieved for 40 years? <laughs> was it not with them that had sinned whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? All that older generation, everybody from 20 and above that decided not to go into the promised land, God said, they're all going to die in the wilderness. So for 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, people were dying and dying and dying to be buried, I guess, in the sands of the desert. <laughs> and after 40 years, everybody in that generation had passed away. There was nobody left that was 20 years or more other than Joshua and Caleb because of their faithfulness to God. These are who he's referring to. So, and then it says, And to whom swore he that they should not enter into his rest, but to those that believed not, lacked faith, that would not go into the promised land because they did not trust God. Not trusting God is a serious issue. Now, does that mean every single person that died in the wilderness went to hell? No. It just means they did not have enough trust to say, we believe that God can deliver us in that promised land, in the, in the place of rest. If you want to walk in faith rest, you have to trust God to be your answer to the problems. If you do not, you're going to struggle in the wilderness for your whole life, dying in the wilderness, and never truly have the rest that God promised. The, this going into the promised land was not heaven. It was just the rest that he promised. He says, I'm going to put you in your own country. You're going to be okay. You're going to be at rest. You're not going to be wandering. You're not going to be struggling. You're going to be in your own country. When we learn to rest in God and trust God, we enter into rest. Without that, we're struggling all the time. And we're going, God, I just don't know. Look how difficult it is. Oh, God, you, you, you wanted me to go in that land with all those giants? Uh-uh, no way, no how. I'm not going in. Well, then you just stay out here and you struggle for the rest of your life. And God's saying, are you ready to go into the promised land? Are you ready to enter into rest? No, God, there's giants over there. You know, what is our attitude toward the giants? The, giants the attitude toward the giants should be, here's God's chance to show me how strong he is. When David met Goliath, he's going, this uncircumcised Philistine has insulted God, and God will deliver me, him into my hands. David did not go into that battle thinking, I'm stronger than a giant. I can take this giant all by myself. He goes, God is going to deliver him. When we have a giant before us, we need to turn to God and say, God, time for you to take out this giant. You may use me to take him out, but it's time for you to take out this giant. And it's an amazing thing that when you come to a problem that looks so big, how many times when you get to the other side of that problem do you look back and say, 
that really wasn't that big a problem. You know, it looked big, but now I've grown or whatever, and it doesn't look big anymore. And I kind of understand that, you know, there's a slide that when I was six years old, I, I, in my mind, it's like 30 feet tall. Now, I know it was only because I was three feet tall, and I think it was a 10-foot slide, you know, but I know that if I go back now and saw the same slide, it's like, this was, this was that big slide? This was the slide I remember as being a huge monster? But that is really the way things are when we get to a problem. And then God brings us to the other side and we look back and go, that really wasn't that big a problem. Now, does that, it could mean that God has taken that mountain, cast it into the sea. He might, kill, he might have slain the giant that was bothering us. But when we trust in him, there is victory. Because he's doing the battle. Now, if I have to fight the battles, I'm in trouble. If I have to fight the giant in my own strength, I'm in trouble. Goliath was, had been fighting since he was a youth. He was a mighty warrior. He was a champion. David looked at him and said, God's going to deliver him. My God will take him out. And he did. So where is our trust? Where is our rest? The promised land is filled with trials, but because I'm resting in God, the trials are nothing because we just watch God overcome the trials. Now, when we're in the middle of a trial, it doesn't seem like it's ever going to go away. God, I just don't know about this trial. <laughs> it seems awfully big. And God says, well, it's not as big to me. And when we just surrender and let him take care of our trials, it'll be good. And then the last verse on here is, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. If we do not believe we lack faith, we will not enter into faith rest. And that's part of what we want to consider in these, these chapters. These chapters are not talking about heaven and hell. They're talking about entering into the rest of, of Christ. Am I saved and entering into rest? These aren't salvation verses. These are saying, am I resting in Christ and trusting in him. And this is the very important thing. When we get to the place where we are resting in him, it is wonderful. The battle goes on around us, but who's fighting it? God. I'm hidden in Christ. You know, Satan knocks on the door and goes, Jesus, it's for you. And Jesus goes to the door and says, yes, what can I do for you? I don't want to have anything to do with you. And he runs away. We come to the problem and God, Jesus says, okay, I'm going out to fight. You just stay here. He defeats the enemy and we walk on into our, into our life. Or we live on the other side of the Jordan in the wilderness where we're going to die, we're going to suffer, and we're wandering through all these problems trying to do it ourselves. And when Satan comes to the door on that side of it, on the other side of the Jordan, we go to the door and go, yeah, what do you want? I want to, I want to take you out. I am going to take you out and I'm going, to, I'm going to win because you answered the door. Because we're not resting in faith. This is so important. This whole book is about our faith rest with God. And how different life is when we rest in faith. 
and let him be our victory. Let him be our strength. Let him be our Lord. When we're trying to do it on our own, we're in trouble. And that's when we're struggling with every single decision. God, I just don't know. And it's not easy in the, pro in the promised land either. <laughs> but my attitude is totally different. You know, they had to go in and conquer the promised land. And I loved Caleb because what, what did Caleb say? I want that mountain over there where the giants live. He's 80 years old and he's saying, I want that mountain where the, the hardest, I want the hardest place to go. Because I want to see God work. I want to see God deliver those giants into my hand. Is that our attitude toward life? Or is it God, I want the easiest life possible. I don't want any trials. And if there's any trials, you know, something's wrong. The prosperity gospel, if there's any problem, something's wrong in my life. And God is saying, we should be more like Joshua and Caleb. I want, God, I want to see you do the work. You know, those, there's giants over there. I want, you, I want you to show me that you're still God. And we enter those problems. We say, God, it's all yours. Let me, let me see you do this. Let me see you deliver. And that's the beauty of faith rest. I get to just sit back and say, God, I trust your word. I know that you have a plan. I know that you are sovereign. I know that nothing happens in my life without you allowing it. And it may seem strange to me right now, but you have a plan and I'm going to trust it. And I'm just walking in faith. And I'm resting to see what you're going to do. This is the beauty of it. Am I in the promised land in rest? Or am I in the wilderness struggling with every single problem that comes along? And I, sometimes it's both. There's certain areas of my life that I'm sitting in faith rest and certain areas of my life that I'm trying to fight myself. And it's miserable fighting those battles when it's supposed to be all faith rest and I just look and say, all right, God, it's you. I am going to trust you. And I'm going to depend on you. So I, my encouragement is let's all cross the River Jordan and let God put us into rest. And say, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm not going to have want of un unbelief. I, I want to be at the right place. I'm entering in to your rest where you are in charge. You're answering the doors. You're the one that's going out to fight the battles. And I'm just kicked back and watching as you do the, as you do the battles. On the other side, we have to go to battle. We have to go to war. We get beat up. Because it's us going out to war. We may still win because God is on our side. But we're going to come back bloodied and bruised and battered because we're trying to do things ourselves. And if we're really bad, God's going to really let us get beat up and say, are you ready to rest yet? I've been there. You know, battling and battling and battle. I am going to make this happen. And God says, well, I'm not going to let you get this happen because you're not trusting in me and come back beat up, disappointed, maybe won a little bit of the battle but not enough, and come back the next day to fight the battle all over again and get beat up, and finally have to surrender to God and say, God, I surrender. I surrender. You can have this area of my life. I'm tired of fighting in this area. I want to enter into faith rest. And this is very important. This whole book is about faith rest overall.
that God has done this for us. He has made us who he said we were going to be and done it for us. And the examples are all through the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness because they did not want to enter into faith rest because they feared what they saw in that land. And faith rest does not mean everything's going to be easy. You know, on one side it does because I'm letting Christ be my warrior, but I'm going to be tempted. I'm going to be tempted to jump out and go do the fight. And I need to be able to say, God, I surrender. Just as we sang this morning, I surrender all. All to Jesus, I surrender. You know, is that what we're going to do? Am I going to surrender all my life to him? And he's going to keep putting us into places and say, are you going to surrender this area? Are you going to surrender this area? Are you going to surrender this area? And over and over again, he places us in places where we need to surrender and be able to say, God, I'm just giving up. I do not want to fight you anymore. I do not want to fight Satan anymore. I want to just rest. And when you start entering into faith rest, it starts getting easier and easier. And we're going to end here. I didn't think we were only going to do seven verses tonight. but <laughs> Lord, thank you for this evening. Lord, we ask that you help bring us all into faith rest. Teach us to surrender. Help us to surrender to you in each of these situations. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com. Or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.